the answer at the end of the day was, is that your biggest success blocker is that you don't feel that you're worthy. And I just instantly was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense to me. Because when I was a child, I could never get my parents' attention. I was never worthy enough. I was never good enough. And so when you think about those formative years from zero to six, which are really the critical years, I never got that. And so that was a manifestation of so many other choices of my life moving forward up to now until I just had this massive breakthrough literally within the last two days. And so so getting to the point of like making that mature choice, let me tell you another story. And this is my preference why I made that mature choice. So at 16, I worked at the zoo and in the food service. One day I called in sick and my boss knew something was up. So he called and my mom answered. So he goes, oh, is, is Jim there? And she said, no, no, he's, yes, he's, he's, he's homesick. She gets off the phone. She just starts yelling at me. Like, how dare you make me lie for you? And, and I was like, I never asked you to lie. I never told you to stand up for me. And I remember my dad really vividly saying, he's right, Alice. You know, because my dad was like, that's the consequence that you have to pay if you're going to do that. If you're going to lie to someone and you get caught, there's a consequence to that. So the reason why I bring that story up is that even at 16, I was very clear of right and wrong. Yeah, I shouldn't have lied, but I also knew someone else shouldn't have lied for me. I had to be accountable for myself and my own behaviors. And so fast forward to 24 and I have to go to this this outpatient program. But that was my responsibility. That was my mistake. So if if my one of my key ethos is being responsible for my own choices, then I have I have a choice in that manner or in that moment to be responsible. And I thought to myself to really maximize the opportunity for personal growth and understanding, I probably should just be accountable for this and own it and enjoy the process in it. That's Dr. James Kelly, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Day doers, welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast. My guest today is, he's a lot of fun. I like—I don't really know how else to describe the way I feel every time I interact with him. His name is Dr. James Kelly, and he's a professor, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's a podcast host, and he is, yeah, he's a lot of fun. He's got a really cool backstory. You look at what he's doing today, and you don't necessarily see any of what you know what came before it and that's kind of the point of this show right it's to have these stories where as he puts it there's a few zigs and zags along the way uh but you know the the person who comes out is not necessarily the person who went in and it's trying to pick out how you get that variation so that you change so you know maybe there's something uh something that you can take from it as you go through your own process to see how you come out on the other end. Um, he is, I mentioned he's a professor. He's at a university in Dubai. Uh, he has a book called The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. So he's all about authenticity. And um, if you have an Audible account, that is a really cool way to take in the book because he actually hired three actors to act out or play out the um, you know the dialogue the ideas in the book it's a really it's a really interesting way to uh, experience the book so I think that's very cool um, he also uh, hosts a podcast called executive after hours 
And that's where he and I met. I was on his show probably a couple of years ago and we just, we just clicked. Like I said, it was fun. Um, we had a blast with that and just stayed connected and, uh, you know, kept, kept things going. And, and I was like, you know, I'd love to have you on the show. Cause I think he's super inspiring and yeah, I'll, I'll keep saying the word fun. I should just title this whole episode fun. Um, he's a lot of fun and you will enjoy listening to him. He also, uh, is, is leading a startup or starting a company called Q change um, that we get into a little bit in the book as well. It's all about how to use technology to try to cue changes in our behaviors to make better choices. Um, so he'll he'll go into that a little bit more. But I'm really um, I'm always personally excited to get time with him. So even if I didn't do anything with this episode, I certainly would have enjoyed it. But um, I, I think Dr. James Kelly's great. He's a lot of fun, as I keep saying. Um, super interesting and some really cool lessons. His backstory is is very neat. We've uh, we've got this really interesting connection in selling cars way back in the day. So all that comes out and more with Dr. James Kelly. Dr. James Kelly, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining me on the show. Mr. Brian, I'm doing fan freaking tastic. Thanks for having me on your show. You, you didn't have to use my title, Mister. That's all right. <laughs> um, I guess I went there anyway, so it's yeah. on me. <laughs> I like to keep it professional at all costs. Yeah, you can tell. Um, no one would know this because I'm I'm gonna chop it all off. But we've already been talking for 20 minutes. I think we've had like three other interviews in the process. It's I gotta see. Maybe there's some gems <laughs> to pull together. Um, this is how we do it, though, isn't it? Like every time yeah. we've talked, uh, we, we've had some reason to talk, and then we end up like halfway through our time, like oh, we we still have to talk yeah. about this other stuff. <laughs> we rabbit hole it. That's all That's we right. do. Fall in the rabbit hole and just go. Yeah. So this is only going to end up being a five-minute episode. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we have time left for. Um, well, great. Thanks for being on. And, uh, you know, we'll have to have you again. Take care. <laughs> thanks thanks for having me. It was great. I enjoyed, enjoyed all the interactions. <laughs> so other than us laughing together, and uh, I, I will link to it, but you have me on your show, and I think that was I've, – I've done, I've done quite a few of these, and there's some hosts where it's just like – if uh, if I don't creep them out by saying this, that's my new best friend. Like you just you know you just hit it off right off the bat. Um, yeah. and I think it really shows in the interview. And I wasn't even doing a show yet, but when when we got off that call, I was kind of like, that's the kind of person I want to be talking to on my own show. And and I was like, wait, my own show? I should be doing that. <laughs> um, so you may not know that you were part of the catalyst for doing this in the first place because this is. You know, it's it's like purpose and the the lessons people can take forward, but also the energy that a guest would bring. That's exactly what I want to be having on. So I'm very excited to finally make this happen. Well, th thank you so much. That was very really kind words, by the way, because I didn't actually like you on the show at all, and so I just thought, oh, nice. you know, <laughs> then it worked. My whole plan. <laughs> all right, let's be serious. Here we go. Serious yes. voice. Right, uh, let's go, Doctor Kelly. Um, mm -hmm. So who? Who the heck are you? Give us like the uh, yeah. the quick rundown of who you are today, but then obviously we're gonna get yeah. to what built you into that, like because you didn't start as Dr. James Kelly from birth. No, that's for sure. That's that's for damn sure. Um, so currently I live right outside of Dubai in a little town called Alain, A L space A I N. You can look it up. It's right on the Oman 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 border. And I've been here for about three years, and I came out here for a couple different reasons. One, 
is that I really wanted my four kids. My oldest is 10. My youngest is, is uh, coming on four, acting like 40. Uh, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted my kids to experience something other. Yeah. And I wanted them to, and I don't say this as, as any type of condescending way, but typically in America, we, t- we, tend, to, we tend to silo ourselves. We yeah. tend to you know, live in neighborhoods of people who are like us. And so I thought it was really important that my children understood what inclusion really meant by being in an environment where they are one of hundreds mm-hmm. from around the world. And so, for example, my, you know, my children go to a school where they are with uh, the British, the Emiratis, Omanis, Egyptians, Jordanians, uh, Irish, uh, Korean, Swiss, French. And so, you know, they're at a UN, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're learning about how these different people talk and act and behave. And that's invaluable when you fast forward 20 years from now, when you're interacting with people from around the world. So that was one reason. Second reason is uh, I got f- not fired. I didn't let go is a more appropriate word in this context from my job at St. Joe's University in Philadelphia. I did not get tenure, mm. which is like the holy grail in higher education. Yeah. But it, but it, but it was never, it was never my driving force. It never really intrigued me to have a job forever or at least tenure. And so I was always chasing these shiny things on the side, which didn't mean writing and, and producing. So I had articles, but you know, it was about one or two shy of getting, getting tenure. So, yeah. uh, I had an opportunity to come out here cause a good friend of mine was working out here and that's why I ended up out here. So and I knew when I came out here, I was able to to acquire research funds to write my book and to do some other startup stuff, other tech stuff that I think is really interesting from a research perspective. And that's kind of the big thing. We'll be out here most likely through 2020 June, um, and we'll head back to the States uh, towards the West Coast. The West Coast. All right. You're, you're an East Coast guy by background, right? No, or I'm just actually- just Philly for a little while. Just Philly for seven years. I was actually born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And so I grew up there until I was 17. And literally at 17, I have been everywhere else you can think of. So I went to college in Ohio. Mm. Uh, and then I and then I and then I moved I quit college after a year and I moved back to Portland. Uh, at that time my parents had moved to Chicago. Okay. But I moved I moved back to Portland and I sold new and used cars for a year. And my, my biggest claim to fame is that I salesperson of the month in December. Wow. 1994. Uh, I don't know where that plaque's at. I'm sure it's some, <laughs> some box somewhere. Um, and so, and so I was salesperson of the month then. And, you know, at 19 years old, back in 93 or four, making $3,000 a month, that's a lot that's of money. A, yeah. That's a big deal. You know? go from zero to three uh, K. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it was good. And then I realized, uh, and this is a great story. So in this environment at this time, I think car sales people are much more refined than at this time, but, and they were more refined then than they were before that. Yeah. But there was this shack called the, we called the used car shack it was on the used car lot. And that's where you would kind of go to disappear. If you don't want to deal with anybody on the job, yeah. you kind of leave like 40 feet. So, yeah. so one day I walked in and it was March and two guys, one guy was bent over a table and the other guy was standing next to him and they both had a rolled up dollar bill with some was, white powder on so the table. I just going to ask you about this. Yeah. Uh, and they both, one did a line and turned to me and said, Hey, do you want to, do you want to do one? And, and I, I mean, it was like every movie you could think of. Yeah. 
it like the sound in my head that fast forward 20 years and i just had this vision of me being in jail or in a dumpster wow and and i just said nope i said this isn't for me and i turned around and i literally walked across the parking lot to the phone called my mom in chicago and said hey i want to go back to school next year and she was like, okay, okay, yeah, okay. She's been let waiting me, for that call. It out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, it, it was one, those were one of those pivotal moments where I could have easily gone down a different path uh, by all standards. Well, um, I, so I, I didn't want to cut you off, but like, A, I was selling cars a year later. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize we had, we had this in common. We had a trailer, not a shack, in our used car lot. There um, you go. I I was more in the new car space than the used, but yeah, um, yeah the the shack was there or the trailer was there, um, but that I don't I don't know if people realize this, uh, specifically coke, but drugs are a really big problem in car sales because you have a number of people who go from zero to thousands of dollars in income yeah. and have no clue what to do with it, and there is a a component of that world that preys on it, and also yeah. I also had no idea about this, but cars at least back then and and in the 80s were used to ferry drugs around so people would go on quote unquote test drives and the, you know i i had to wonder there was one guy in our dealership who kept needing us to move like four cars at one time and it never made sense to me i'm like why does he have like they're all outfitted the exact same way they're just different colors like why no one would uh. test drive like oh i want to try the blue one the red one like they're all corollas you know like they're all corolla dx they're exactly the same mm. And now I know why. And like, you know, uh, thank God I didn't open the glove box or get yeah. caught. <laughs> I mean, bottom of a river somewhere, yeah. probably. <laughs> That's fascinating. So yeah. yeah, it was, there were tons of steroids going on, lots of big muscle heads, yeah. uh, coke, uh, lots of drinking on the job, you know, because there was also huge chunks of time where you just didn't do anything mm -hmm. for hours on end, you know, and uh, you- It's also it can be really depressing. Because it's a lot of yeah. no's, it's a lot of game playing, it's a lot of pe like people who walk in the yeah. door think you're there to screw them. Yeah. And and you may be. You know, it depends yeah. on how your managers, like, ethically what their style's about. Yeah. It's tough stuff. I think, I think for me, it was I, I did okay because I was this young kid that looked innocent enough that I wasn't smart enough to actually do something wrong. Gotcha. You know, um, there was like there was another guy there who was this Mormon guy who had a beard, looked like Santa, but with a dark beard, super jolly, rosy cheeks. And he killed it. I mean, killed it. Interesting. Just making like like selling 20 to 40 cars a month, even in the bad months. And we were always like, what is he's like, I'm Mormon. People love me. <laughs> and that yeah. was his thing. Like, and I was like, good for you. So anyhow, for people who don't know, the national average is it's between eight and 10 cars. So if you're doing like our dealership, the quota was 25. So, you know, it's wow. serious pressure. But um, yeah. for someone to sell 20 to 40 cars a month, that is huge. Yeah, you're busy that, a lot. Yeah, that is a lot of work. All right. Anyway, so this is yeah. not this. Is, we're, we're dwelling on the car. So I didn't know we'd have that connection. But <laughs> so formative thing that mm. how cool is that from a choice in life perspective? Because a lot of people would be like, I have to say yes. I have to take that bump. I have to fit in. You know, these guys are my buddies, yeah. you know, and, and just maybe without even thinking about it, go for it. And you you chose that other side, which is get you back on the path, I'm assuming. Did you, you yeah, follow totally, through and yeah. you went to school? Yeah, I went back to the same university. Um, and I went from there. I lived in Chicago after that for a year and a half. And then I took a job back in Portland. Uh, but at that point, you know, my, uh, my dad had passed away. So my dad oh. passed away in my third year of university. And I can remember, you never, I don't know if you ever, 
I've heard this when someone has hears you know uh, tragic news, they remember the words, and then everything else kind of goes blurry. Yeah, for sure. Right. And so I can remember I was visiting my girl, my ex-girlfriend at the time, uh, my high school sweetheart at her university back in Oregon. So I flew back out there to see her. And we had walked in her room. And her room, when you walk in, on the right was uh, a dresser, two dressers. On the left was the bunk bed. In the middle was the desks. And I remember walking in. And this is back in the days when no one had cell phones. So the phone rang. And my girlfriend picked it up and said, hey, it's for you. It's Linda, which is a family friend of ours. And all I heard next was, Jim, your dad passed away. And then it was just kind of like blah, blah, blah. Uh, I fell on the ground crying. <clears throat> it, was, it was obviously very emotional in that moment. Yeah. And uh, it, it was one of those things that the next thing I remember was we were driving up to Portland from where we were at, which is about an hour and a half. And I was just doing jokes, like just – sarcastic jokes, one-liners after another, because that's the only way I knew how to deal with that stuff as a, as a human being, and that's how my family dealt with things. Mm. When they were sad, it was just turned to humor. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that was clearly a, a tragic moment. And then, and then um, I don't know, it, it's really interesting. I, you know, I don't know if you've lost someone when you were young, uh, when you were young or close. Did you ever lose anyone young or close? I lost uh, my grandfather when uh, grandfather and grandmother, but my grandfather first, uh, my mom's dad, who I was really close to my mother's parents growing up, but you know, it, I, I still have my parents. Um, and I've had yeah. scares with them. You know, they, they both been through cancer. Um, but it's, it's, and my grandfather was like, he went into the hospital and two months later he died. Like he just, you know, it's, it's not mm -hmm. that it's ever okay, but we were all preparing for it on a daily basis and, you know, still mm -hmm. really hard not, I, I haven't lost what you've lost in the way that you lost mm -hmm. it. Well, and I and I think um, so. I mean, at, at this point, I already lost two grandfathers. You know, one grandfather, uh, then my dad. I mean, I've lost all my grandparents and, and my father and my mom. I mean, knock on wood, I can't believe she's still hanging on. Um, but uh, and I'll get back to that in a second. But there, there is a moment in one's life as a as a son to your father. And, you know, I don't know how you are as a dad, but I'm, I'm very clear that there's a, there's a father role and a son role and yeah. we're not, we're not best friends. You know, my oldest son is 10. Now we're buddies. We hang out, we play video games together. Occasionally I'll play Fortnite just to entertain him. <laughs> um, but we bond over things that he's excited about, but there's still a very clear delineation in terms of who's in charge. Yeah. And that's the way I was raised. It was very clear the line. The difference is that my dad didn't actually spend time with me. Mm. So, um, but what happened is that at 19, you start to trans, trans, transition. You start to be less of a parent-child and more of a friend-friend. And so I always, for, for a while, for about four years, four and a half years, I felt cheated. I felt, um, I felt like the world was against me. And how dare, how dare whoever's in charge of the world, whatever God you believe in, or if you don't believe in God, whatever reason the person died, there was resentment there because that was like the beacon of hope, right? To have that relationship <clears throat> and and earn his respect, if you will. So that was ripped away from me. And, and it manifested itself in some pretty dark ways. I drank a, a lot more. I went from drinking two nights a week at college to drinking five nights a week at college. 
And uh, when I say drinking, I mean pretty pretty drunk regularly, not just a few beers, but pretty drunk and sometimes blackout drunk. And uh, thank goodness I never killed anybody or got killed or hurt, but I, you know, did do a lot of and made a lot of poor choices. Yeah. You know, my my poor girlfriend at that time, she took the brunt of it. I cheated on her. I was super selfish. I was trying to get people's attention all the wrong way. Mm. And I, I didn't know any better. And, you know, I didn't know how to ask for help. And I didn't have anyone around me who actually understood. I mean, I lived in a house with six other guys. Like, do you think a bunch of guys from 19 to 22 had any clue with no. what I'm going through? No. So you were fun. Yeah, I was the fun drunk guy. And that's yeah. where they're like, okay, well, he's doing good. Yeah. But, you know, inside I was in a really bad space. And so it, it manifested itself um, in when I was 24 and I got a DUI and it's kind of a funny story. I mean, no one was hurt, but I was, I was, I came out, uh, I came home at like one in the morning, two in the morning and I was living in Portland at the time. And I remember vividly, there was this stretch of road by my mom's house. that was like an S turn. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm Mario Andretti. That's a bit of an older reference for you race car people, but Michael you know, Andretti you get, for slightly younger people. And there we go. Or Lewis Hamilton, yeah, if you Lewis like Lewis Hamilton, F1. yeah. Yeah. So I remember in my head thinking, okay, and I was going like 75 or 80 in a 35 in this zone. And I hit the S turn, and all of a sudden I see this car turn around, these lights pop on. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I thought, okay, I've got, I've got like, I've got like two, two distinct choices. Pull over, take my lumps, or I can race home, get out of the car, get in the house, and get away with the greatest crime in the world. Option three did not appear to me. Uh, I got to the house. The cop was behind me. Yeah. I got arrested. My mom's brand new boyfriend came out in his tidy whities. It was like, what is going on here? I'm in handcuffs. I'm being taken downtown. Uh, not the highlight of my life. My mom, you know, my dad had been passed away a couple of years, but she just, every time something happens, she just goes into panic mode. Yeah. But that was probably the single best thing that ever happened to me in my life, besides marrying my wife and having kids, uh, because of what it forced me to do. It, it forced me to ask harder questions about who I want to be, how I want to live, how I want to be remembered. And so part of the, the, the consequences of my behavior is I had to go to an outpatient rehab program. And the program was for the first six months, it was, it was three hours a night, four nights a week. And then for the next six months, it was three hours a night, once a week. Uh, and then it was once a year, I had to see a psychologist every month. And it, it was, as I said, probably the single most impactful and positive event in my life. Hmm. And the reason why I was able to do that uh, is that I, I had the desire, the resilience, and the ability to ask the question of, why did this happen for me, not to me? Because there, there would have been a lot of 24-year-olds who would have gone into that and just been bitter, arms crossed, legs crossed, and just done their time. Yep. You know? And I just thought to myself, if I'm going to do this, then I need to do it right. I need to grow and learn and understand myself and what addiction looks like. And I had a tremendous counselor and uh, we would sit in groups and I would hear the stories of these people and it put my life in some serious perspective. You know, people who were abused, people who had lost someone, a child, 
Um, people who have been drunk their whole entire life have lost everything around them because of their alcoholism. So it, it put my life into perspective pretty quick. And so it was that ability to pivot from a to me to a for me that I think allowed me to be open to the possibilities of what if I did things differently? What if I asked different questions? And what if I responded in a way that had a positive outcome, not a negative outcome? There's a lot of information there. No, that's, I mean, that is, I, I, want, I want to give you credit for the maturity at 24. To, yeah, right. To be I able lost to it at 44, that? don't worry. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. 20 years, it fades. Um, mm -hmm. No, but that's, I mean, that, that's, um, it certainly did not have to go that way. That's it, a really profound, and, and given actually where you were at for the prior few years, you know, the five years since your dad had passed, all signs would suggest that it wouldn't go that way. What What do you think? I mean, I'm guessing the the guy who made that plan A or plan B and didn't see plan C getting arrested kind of decision isn't really the one who would have been resilient and recognizing the opportunity he was handed in this seemingly terrible situation. Was that always in you or did something kind of kick you in the face and be like, wake up? So I, I would argue a little bit differently to that because I think it's always in you. I think it's a choice of letting it be an option for you. Were you aware of it, though? Um, you know, it's funny. when I was So when I quit school and sold cars, you and I bond over that, yeah. um, I lived with my grandma, which is really awesome for dating, by the way. Yeah. So if you ever want to get chicks, um, it's the same as living with your mom at 24 and getting into UI if you ever want to get a girlfriend. Um, but my grandma said to me one time, she said, you know, I actually never worry about you because you're resilient. Interesting. And, and so she saw something in me that I didn't see. And I think that that just kind of stirred inside me and sat in the back of my brain, in my subconscious, my conscious, somewhere, wherever it was going to, you know, sit. Mm -hmm. And I have a strong belief in that. You know, I, I grew up in a house where I was the youngest by five years. Uh, I was my, my, my dad was my mom's second marriage. I had two older brothers from her first marriage. And were you their only uh, kid? I was their only kid. Yeah. And so I, th I think that, um, so growing up like that, I was also left by myself a lot. My parents weren't the parents that were going to entertain me. And so my older two brothers swam. And if you come from a swimming family, that, that is an all encompassing sport when yeah. you're talented. Yeah. And so my, my brothers were gone every morning, home late at night. Uh, they were in high school and, and I was just by myself. My parents would say, go use your imagination, go outside, go play with your cars. And so you're kind of have to learn. And I just, you know, I just learned this about myself actually just the other day.
So, you know, when you, when you grow up like that and you have a lot of time by yourself, a couple things happen. And this happened to me. And I just realized it the other day and I was, and I was joking with my wife because, um, I, I was up late, like around nine, 10 o'clock, which for me is fairly late nowadays. And, uh, I ended up taking one of those Facebook quizzes, you know, like one of those, like, I don't, I never take these quizzes. And I thought, Oh, this one was about success blockers. Interesting. So I take it well done by the company that did it really well done. But, but the answer at the end of the day was, is that your biggest success blockers that you don't feel that you're worthy. Mm, and I just I instantly agree. was like, Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense to me because when I was a child, I could never get my parents' attention. I was never worthy enough. I was never good enough to get their attention. And so when you think about those formative years from zero to six, which are really the critical years in terms of just bonding with your parents, I never got that. And so that was a manifestation of so many other choices of my life moving forward up to now until I just had this massive breakthrough literally within the last two days. Um, wow. And so, so getting to the point of like making that mature choice I think that let me tell you another story. And this is my preference why I made that mature that mature choice. So at 16, I worked at the zoo, uh, not with the animals, but in the food service. Okay. And and it's a much better story if I say I work with the lions, but it just would it's, be a lie. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't want to be in that food service. That's you're, yeah. you're the food. <laughs> I lost an arm. I'm just kidding. Sorry, bad joke. Um, uh, but I worked there, and one day I called in sick, and my boss knew something was up. So. Yeah. An hour and a half later, he called. My mom answered. My mom said, um, so he goes, oh, is, is Jim there? And she said, no, no, he's, yes, he's, he's, he's homesick because he asked her, is he sick, right? So mm -hmm. it kind of came around. She gets off the phone. She just starts yelling at me, like, how dare you make me lie for you? And no, 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 no. And I was like, I never asked you to lie. I never told you to stand up for me. I never said that you had to fulfill that on your end. That was your choice. And I remember my dad really vividly saying, he's right, Alice. No one told you to lie, and you probably shouldn't have. And, you know, because my dad was like, that's the consequence that you have to pay if you're going to do that. If you're going to lie to someone and you yeah. get caught, there's a consequence to that. So the reason why I bring that story up is that even at 16, I was very clear of right and wrong. Yeah, I shouldn't have lied, but I also knew someone else shouldn't have lied for me. Mm. I had to be accountable for myself and my own behaviors. And so fast forward to 24, and I have to go to this, this outpatient program. But that was my responsibility. That was my mistake. So if, if my, one of my key ethos is being responsible for my own choices, then I have, a, I have a choice in that manner or in that moment to be responsible. And I thought to myself, to really maximize the opportunity for personal growth and understanding, I probably should just be accountable for this and own it and enjoy the process in it. So that, I mean, I'm trying to give you a bit of a backstory of how I got to there. Yeah, I'm still... I'm still like, wow, every 24-year-old, if they can have that level of self-awareness, insight, and opportunity, um, and seeing it that way, that would be a game changer for the entire world. Forget 24, <laughs> any any yeah, age. But so yeah. I'm, I'm conscious of the time, and um, but I'm also loving the stories. So maybe this needs to be like a six-part interview series. But <laughs> is, is this the stuff that, like, are, are these the lessons that ultimately form how you form inform form how you inform leadership today and 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 the lessons that you're trying to impart and the tools you're trying to give people yeah yeah that's a really great question you know I, as you know people ask you this a thousand times like what was the impetus of you writing your book <clears throat> and you have your story and 
um, which is a great story. And and for me, what's really interesting, the reason why I wrote The Crucible's Gift was because it was inside me. And what I did is I found support in my podcast for what I thought was the best way to lead. Mm. And so I... I try to take these lessons of compassion and integrity in relationships. And, you know, my premise is that, you know, I mean, the, the big macro premise of the book is that when you look at all of my adversity moments that I've had in my life, you know, all of them um, have resulted in an opportunity for me to learn, right? And all of them have resulted in me trying to do um, the best I can with what I know. And to do that, I, I have to be open to the possibilities of adversity giving me the growth moments. Mm. And so what I learned by that, and I, say, I used the phrase earlier, is that you know, the leaders that I interviewed for my podcast help support my notion of the idea that when you have adversity, the moment you move from to me to for me, it is very powerful. When I say that, though, I'm not saying you don't have to actually acknowledge your pain, have moments of sorrow and sadness and depression because you know what that is equally as necessary to get to the other side now it's not okay to be in that space for three four five six seven eight years mm. i can tell you that i've interviewed executives who own their own companies work for billion dollar companies <clears throat> who took them about 20 years until they realized why they were acting the way they acted and the moment they did that and they started asking that question of the four, not the two. It just instantly just changed their life instantly. Yeah. And it was just, it was this thing where they said, "Wow, this, this can be done different." Because now that I understand what happened to me then, that was a lesson and opportunity of how I want to be different moving to the future. So, so those adversity moments, what I found and what I believe and what I espouse in the book, is that when you have adversity. And you move it through the process. If you want to call it mourning, that's fine in that moment. When you move through that onto the other side, you actually start looking at things differently. You start actually becoming more compassionate to those around you. For those who had similar or tangential uh, circumstances, you understand it. You're less judgmental. You're more patient. You are more present when you talk to them. When you go through adversity and you and you trend. Uh, transfer to the other side, you you also start valuing the process of honesty. <clears throat> you know, I shared with you before the show started, I had a relative steal $10,000 from me when I was in my early 20s. If that doesn't erode trust, I'm not sure what does, but it was another one of those conscious choices that that's not everybody, that's a situation, that's not a totality of the world. And so I took that adversity and said, I need to give people the opportunity to break my trust. I, you know what I mean? Often we say you have to earn my trust. And I, yeah. and I understand why people have that perception. I start the other way around, and I start with trust, and then you erode it away from me. Yeah. <clears throat> because if I start there, then that's in good faith. It's not easy to do, and it's not for everybody, but it's powerful when people see that you trust them straight away. Yeah. The other, the other thing that I realized is that through the adversity again, you start to actually value those relationships. Not only those closest to you, but those that you can have an impact on. And there's this term in the book that I call micro moments of meaning. <clears throat> and this term to me is, is one of my core philosophies in life. And I found leaders time and time again that are really good at this. And what this is, is that th there's a lot of neuroscience behind this. And so what, what it says is that when I have an interaction with somebody, whether it is 30 seconds or whether it is two minutes long, <clears throat> 
at the end of that conversation, my main goal is to leave them smiling, hmm. to leave them with some sort of positive connotation of that moment in time. And the reason why that's important is that in your brain, a neuron is firing, which is creating a memory of that moment. And then what happens from that, and what the literature says, is that when someone has this positive moment, they go on and to create another positive moment for somebody else. And now imagine if you can if you can almost manufacture that from the from the from the core of like a ground zero effect, if you will, and all of a sudden everyone's being positive for a genuine, kind, supportive, compassionate reason. Mm. Now I know this is pie in the sky stuff, but it, it does happen, and it is reality. And organizations still do it, and leaders who espouse it get the most out of their people. But here's the thing that I found, Brian, that was the most impactful of all of this. You could not only have your adversity and grow your self-awareness and be more compassionate, integrity and relationships, but it wouldn't work and it wouldn't matter if you didn't have a growth mindset, if you didn't have a learning mindset. Because without that, you're never actually able to grow your self-awareness and the depth of who you are to have a better understanding of what your needs and wants are to be a better human being in the world that you exist in. So... One of the well, no, no, no. I I love this. Um, the growth mindset. It's it's a very hot topic right now. Yeah, there's there are a lot of people focused on it, and one of the debates that I hear people get into is whether it's something you just have, or whether it's a muscle you can build. And I'm I'm curious since you brought it up, where you fall on that spectrum. Well, it's it's interesting because when you read about it, it's not a zero sum game. And so there are aspects of all of us that are in growth and aspects in all of us that are in fixed. What is really important is that the areas that we are fixed in, that we recognize those, identify those, whether we need help to see that, and then be open to the possibility to flex those muscles, mm. to challenge our, our beliefs around that, whatever you're fixed in. So, you know, and this becomes more difficult as you get older. I mean, the older you get, the more fixed you get with what you know. Yeah. And it's, just, it's just human nature. I mean, think of your parents trying to get them to use a new technology. Forget it. No, forget it. For yourselves. So, Once you have kids, as you soon realize. <laughs> um, yeah, my kid's probably going to be coding around me and making like, I don't know, hacking into my system and stealing all of my cash. Um, but you won't and know so that. I won't know yeah, it. They'll so put fake okay. dollars in there. So yeah. it's all right. Um, he'll be buying V-Bucks. For any of those, anyone out there who knows who those are, your kid plays Fortnite and you're aware. Um, and so... The, the critical thing about that comment is it's not zero sum. We all are a growth in something and we're all fixed in something too. Yeah. You know, I think often we think it's, it's, it's all or nothing and that's not true. When you read Carol Dweck's book, she comes up with many examples of, of um, people being multiple growth and multiple fixed on the same continuum on mm -hmm. different topics or contexts. And so just to, just to go back to what I said, the, the key thing is just recognizing what the fixed is and how that's either harming you or helping you. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think that's the other thing. And that's, the, that's, that's really the development of the self-awareness. And that's the growth. So if you're willing to grow in your self-awareness and take the things that you're fixed in and be okay with it, if it's not hurting or harming anybody, then that's fine. If you're somebody who um, is really fixed on the idea of never drinking, like you're just anti-alcohol, that's a fixed mindset. Growth mindset would be I want to explore and find things out, you know, is one aspect of that, yeah. you know, and often in a leadership capacity, the best way to see someone who a leader who's fixed versus growth is the way they deal with successes and failures in the organization. So, so leaders who have a growth mindset, they very often don't take credit for any of the successes and are keen to figure out all of the failures. 
and they'll take the blame for it. They'll dissect it and they'll figure out how to, how to rework them to improve upon those failures to make them successes. If someone who's fixed, typically fixed mindset is they don't want to try things new. They take all the glory when something works well and they displace, displace blame when something doesn't work well. So it's almost like the exact opposite uh, of what occurs there. And we all know people that fall on both sides of that. Yeah. And think to yourself who you, who you prefer to work for at the end of the day or work with. Yeah. You know, there, there's someone you're always working with and for, and that's yourself. And I'm just, as we're talking about this, I'm coming right back to your comment earlier about that sense of self-worth and, mm -hmm. and then also layering into that your discussion about trust and whether we start with, um, you know, the sort of like trust, I, I, I will trust you. And, and if you take that from me, then I'll, you know, I'll learn from that and, and maybe I won't trust you next time, or I'll give you different responsibilities or whatever versus, um, you know, I've certainly worked for people with people who like categorically do not trust anyone. And it's like a multi-decade process to just get to even keel with them, let alone a place of trust. And what I'm left with is a sense of like, well, do you even trust yourself? Like, are you going into your relationship mm -hmm. with yourself as non-trusting? You're, tr you know, mm -hmm. trusting your ability to achieve trusting. And I wonder if people who are in that fixed mindset place, if that's really where it's coming from, because they don't trust themselves and they don't have faith in themselves, they have to fix what's around them and they have to seek to place blame because they're, they're insecure with their own sense of themselves and whether... You, you need to trust in yourself to know that you can say, you know what, this didn't go well, and that's on me. That's my mm -hmm. failure as a leadership. It's not, you know, John on the front line and Sally and whoever. It's me for not seeing the problem, doing something about it, and steering us in the right direction. You have to have a lot of faith in yourself to be able mm -hmm. to stand up for that. Yeah, and I, I actually think you need to have a lot of humility. Yeah. I think that's a, it's a huge part of it. And it's really interesting just to dissect what you're saying about the trust issue. You know, it's such a multi-layered and complex issue because, you know, as you started off, each person has their own journey that they're on. Yeah. And each journey has different off-ramps and on-ramps and potholes. And what I think the growth mindset comes into play when we, when we talk about all this, I can't, I go back to this and I'm, I'm just more and more convinced about this, and I'd love for you to argue against it, I guess, is the notion of those that have a growth mindset doesn't mean that they're good or bad or fixed or, or growth in different topics, but more or context, but that they're growth about themselves. I'm just, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that those who have a growth mindset in terms of themselves are actually the ones who are okay with some of their weaknesses and some of their, their blind spots. Again, as long as the blind spots aren't harming anybody, yeah, and they embrace the process more. Where I find those who are weaker at self awareness, and this is for a lot of us, we're really weak at our self awareness. Yeah, uh, it's not easy to do because you have to be vulnerable, yeah. and if you're not vulnerable to the possibilities, I mean, I'll, I'll use a great example. I mean, my my wife was raised in a perfectionist household, had to be perfect, and so for her. Anything less than perfect is really uncomfortable. So she's very blind to any mistakes that she makes. And if she does make a mistake, there's a ton of reasons why. And I'm not trying to throw her under a bus, but we, we come from this from different perspectives. Yeah. And so as we've, the longer we've been married, we're going on 12 years, I think, 12 years. Um, we can edit in the right amount if you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm a gambling man, Brian. I'll go with 12. Um, 
is that she's now starting to to be more open to the possibility that she doesn't know everything, that she doesn't have to be right, and that there are other options. So what's happened is that through our constant collaboration and conversation as a couple, we have been able to get to a place where I can say to her in a non-judgmental way, you know, you don't have to be right. You you can be okay at something. Uh, sometimes done is better than perfect. If done gets the job where it needs to be, yeah. and and in that she has to be more vulnerable about making the mistakes and not being perfect, and that's uncomfortable for her, and that's okay. That's that idea of moving from a fix to a growth is starting to allow yourself to be more vulnerable to the possibilities of a failure, mm. of a miscue, and embracing those is the opportunity to learn more about yourself than anything else in the world, right? Because once we become self-actualized, if you will, and I don't think any of us actually fully get there at any point, but if we're on that journey, that allows us to keep being open to more and more possibilities of what if and how could it be and how might it look if I act or be or treat or live a different way. Um, well, I'm going to fail you because I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going <laughs> to argue because I, I, I fully agree. And, um, it's not that I want to switch topics, but you've really, you've triggered something in me from one of the things we were discussing before we started recording is about the startup you're working on. And yeah. as you're talking about done is better than perfect. And like, that is like, that's, <laughs> you have to have that mindset in the startup world. You have to have uh, a growth mindset because otherwise you'd never go to market and all you are is a failure, yeah. a cool idea that never was. So I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, last few minutes, if you could just touch a bit on and and because it, I mean, it sparks so much. What you're working on is meant to spark so much of the kinds of things we're just talking about. So tell us about. I don't know if if you're saying the name or not saying the name of it yet. I'll leave that on you. Um, no, I'll say it. Tell us about the thing that you will say. I mean, if if there's one thing about me, Brian, you know, is that I'm fairly open and transparent. So for me to not say the name is almost like nails on the chalkboard. How uh, startups because, sometimes get in weird stealth mode kind of thing. So yeah, I don't. You know what's funny? I was talking to someone. I don't know if you know who Chris Lockhead is. He does now a show is called the Chris Lockhead Show. Used to be Legends and Losers. Anyhow, oh yeah, um, he he's been a part of like three startups. And I was talking to him a few weeks back, and he's like, "Listen, don't go through this whole NDA stuff and blah blah blah. It's all crap. At the end of the day, people can steal <laughs> your idea and run with it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. So don't go in this like ninja stealth mode because it's really pointless in the bigger picture. Uh, and I've always kind of felt that way. If someone wants to steal my idea, great. They have to do it better than me, and they have to have my intellectual capital inside my head, right? Gotcha. So. Um, so the idea, the company is called Q change. So the letter Q, Q change. Uh, and the premise is really simple. You know, we live in this world that's more connected every single day. And so, uh, I've, I've created this category called the behavioral internet of things category. So it's a subset of internet of things, but it focuses solely on creating positive impact on your behavior through the use of technology. <clears throat> and so what does that mean? So in an organizational setting, what what I've created is the ability to create micro segments in an organization. So often when technology comes in, it's kind of this blanket statement, especially in HR. Insurance, when you use uh, actuaries, is able to kind of drill down a bit further as you go. But traditionally, when people come in with technology, it's kind of a blanket slate, especially health and wellness. And so what I've done is I've created the ability to create micro segments in the organization and on top of that, create experiments using what's called beacon technology. And so through exper experimental psychology and my previous life in health and wellness, what I'm able to do is create experiments to figure out what times, words, phrases, how often you need to see the message, how often you don't need to see the message, 
to impact your behavior at the point of choice. So mm. one key and critical example would be this. You know, we all know somebody, I've been guilty of this myself, you, you get to the elevator and you're actually only just going up one floor and the stairs are immediately to your left and you can easily <laughs> walk up that flight of stairs yeah. but you're like, yeah. So what happens is that at that point of choice, there would, there would be a beacon somewhere located secretly. They're pretty small, like maybe half the size of a dollar bill. And it would send you a Bluetooth notification onto your phone or pushes to your smartwatch or smart device. And it would say to you something to the effect of like, hey, do you know taking the stairs increases your oxygen intake and increases your productivity? It's only 12 steps. Go do it, right? So then it nudges you at that point to go take the stairs. And then at the top of the stairs, there's a second beacon that actually captures if you entered that zone or not. So I'm now measuring, did you actually do that behavior? Yeah. So, so that's one key. You can think of uh, in the break room, if there's candy versus, versus fruit. Uh, but the other way that I'm using it, because I'm a huge proponent on creating culture, is often when we, when we work in an organization at various sizes, we kind of get into our own silos and we just walk down halls or in community areas. We don't actually engage with anybody. And what the literature tells you about purpose and engaging and really increasing engagement is that once you see value in your colleagues, you start to buy into them as human beings, you actually will do more for them because you care about them. Hmm. And so what this technology does is I could say like, you know, Brian from the insurance department, you know, I, may, I would might say the insurance department and I might say, hey, James or the marketing department, when you guys get into this zone, I'm going to send you a notification and I'm going to give you a question to ask that person. And that question might be, hey, Brian, what projects are you working on right now that give you energy and life, right? So what I'm trying to do is get you to focus around what's going wrong with your day or, or your job or your career. What, what's going right? Yeah. So I'm trying to get you to pivot between what we normally think of deficit approach yeah. and think about appreciative approach of the process. And so now I'm trying to create choreographed conversations in an organization that, that bring up and lift up the organization because people start to care for each other. Yeah. Um, and so, and so the final piece of this whole entire puzzle, because the biggest pushback I'm always going to get on this particular technology is, um, because it runs on an app in the background. So if your company has an organ, has an app, it can plug into that. If it doesn't, we have a standalone app. Um, but the biggest thing I'm going to get is like, well, I get tired of my notifications. You know, I get a thousand of them a day and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the statement I have back is every time you get a HuffPo or a New York Times notification, you read it, right? Why? Because it could be important for you. So, the, or it could be a relevant bit of news. You're curious. So the reason why I think this is really important is that once we figure out the, the optimum timing of messages, maybe it's once in the morning, once in the afternoon, it wouldn't be 20 times a day because Lord knows I don't want to get 20 notifications a day. Um, we can also then program into the system multiple different messages around the same topic. Mm. So one message might be, hey, do you know that taking the elevator or taking the stairs does oxygen? One might be, hey, hey, you lazy son of a bitch, take the stairs. You know, like you can figure out whatever you want to say, something funny, something witty, something serious, something factual. You can rotate through to different segments so that the messaging is randomized as well around that particular context or behavior you're trying to nudge. So that's the big, the big thing of the organization. And, and, and so uh, right now we're a minimal viable product and uh, I'll be going for funding hopefully in the next three to six months, so forth and so on. But it's really exciting because this idea of Bluetooth technology, you know, it's a, it's a relatively m like tiny market right now that yeah. has exponential growth when you look at the research. Yeah. You know, IoT is supposed to be 
in all the ancillary industries, like a $5 trillion business by like 2050 or something like that. Yeah. You know, some ridiculous amount of money. So anyhow, so that's the startup. And, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about it. And the, uh, the minimum, the M in, in MVP minimum viable product <laughs> is about getting something done. And I've, I've worked with startups where they think they're so clever for redefining it as maximum because they're going to get all this stuff done. And they, you know, they think it's like a differentiating point when they go to raise money and all it does is scare everyone away because they know you will never go to market. There's always more you can do. There's always more you can perfect. You know, that's why there are software updates for things. That's why there are bug fixes. Yeah. Uh, you got to get it out there and start to impact and start to, um, you know, start to, to create change if you ever want to do anything with it. Yeah, so, one of my, a book I just finished reading the um, the Lean Startup. It's just fantastic from the yeah, standpoint of like you know, yeah, just get and do it and sort it out. You know, because you know, and I think he's really right. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book, but like people who see what you're trying to do, mm -hmm. they'll 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 forgive the mistakes up front. Yeah, you know, if they see the concept, um, yeah. So I'm a big believer in that. Okay. Um. <laughs> We, this, this is a lot. We could, honestly, we could probably go for another couple of hours just given any of our conversations before. And I know there's a ton we haven't really touched on, yeah. um, but we're going we're gonna to have to stop. Anyway, we're, what's next for you? What's coming up that people should look for and how can people find out more about you and the Crucible's Gift? And where can they yeah. watch for Q change being something that's changing people out there in the world? Well, there's lots of different places. So um, the next big thing coming up for me on the book is the audio book, which uh, will be out uh, in, the, in the near distant future. And you and I can sort out the release date. But I'm really excited about that because, you know, I've hired, uh, you know, one of the aspects of my book, which is quite unique, is that I use my old podcast, Executive, Executives After Hours, which is still up on iTunes, um, to to take excerpts of those podcasts and put them into the book as evidence of the idea of compassion and integrity and all that. And so I've, I've hired three actors. Uh, one actor plays me. He's a very handsome guy with a great voice. Um, and then there are two other actors that play the different parts in the book, the different interviews, both male and female. And so it's a really dynamic book that the goal was to find something to, to capture you, your attention, your, your interest. So that's coming out. Um, and you can find more out for find more out about me at www.drjameskelly.com, uh, drjameskelly.com. Uh, any speaking, any facilitations, uh, anything like that, you reach me there. If you want to learn more about QChange, it is uh, QChange.life because uh, .com was not available. <laughs> well, and, and it's about changing lives. Yeah, yeah. So Q change and Q change all one word. There's no dash or correct. No or dash. Q change dot life. I'm an, I'm anti dash. I hear you. Um, I dot com is all like everyone wants dot com, but there are some really clever ones that have come out. I'm still debating whether I got get do a day dot book. I think I have to now that I've said that because someone else will go out and get it. Um. Anyway, uh, yeah. I I'm I'm so thankful for finally getting this uh this chance to sit down with you and um. I think I might inappropriate if I tell you up front that I think it's legal, but I might record all of our just regular conversations any other time because there might be more podcast episodes like secretly <laughs> hiding in there, which of course is a violation of privacy laws unless I tell you. So, yeah, yeah. so now I'm clear. 
Yeah, you can do it whenever you want, Brian. That's all yeah, right. Yeah, nice. Or maybe I'm protected because you're in Dubai. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Or, or it's International. worse. International. Yeah. Yeah. Interpol is yeah. going to come for me instead. Did you ever, like, as a, as a child, as a child, as a young adult, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek to the audience where, like, <clears throat> like you watch a movie and they would say, oh, if it's in a different zip code, it doesn't count. You know, like that type of thing. <laughs> um, I'm not going to admit to any of those things. <laughs> zip code's a little too close, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Country. If she's in Canada, he's in Canada. They're in Canada. No, I'm a, I'm a good person, so I don't know what you're talking you about. Um, I've you heard are. of asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Are you are you cool helping me close things out? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Today is a new day. Go out and do it. Ooh, that's some energy. <laughs> that was good stuff. Thank you. See, it was really fun, right? I love that guy. Dr. Kelly is awesome. Uh, he He's fun, but he's also super thought-provoking. And that's what I think makes him such a great guest and such a great person is he'll really get you to think, but also you just kind of enjoy hearing him and interacting with him anyway. It's a great mix. So you can uh, you can obviously get more about Jim, Dr. Kelly at drjameskelly.com. Um, all the, the links that he talked about, find the Crucible's gift. Um, but I think this is a point we all need to think about. It's the clip that I used to bring the whole episode um to a start at the beginning is around your sense of worth and whether you feel good enough from an early age that starts with good enough through the eyes of others. And often those others are our parents, but throughout life, who are the other people that we're looking to, to judge us as good enough? And you know, the point I always make is around self-love. Like ultimately it's you. If you can't move to a place where you are good enough for you, then it doesn't matter because you're the only person you always have. You know, Jim was talking about how his dad's passed away and, you know, whether he had that feeling or not of being good enough. And now that his dad's gone, he can't get to that place with him. You know, people will come and go, but ultimately you're just you. That's all you have. So definitely feeling good enough with some of these key people in our lives is really impactful. And the path forward maybe to focus on feeling good enough with yourself. So I'll leave you guys with that thought to ponder, bring it back, do some thought, maybe grab the big goal exercise to think about these things a little bit more with a little bit of guidance. Maybe go back and listen to this episode again or maybe some of the others. But reflect on that, whether you feel you're good enough, not in the eyes of someone else, but in the eyes of yourselves. Have an amazing day. Every day is that new opportunity you get to go out and do it. Thanks for listening.